welcome to the 15th episode of Wildfire Matters, a podcast that covers all aspects of wildland fire management for the Bureau of Land Management, or BLM. We talk with the people who help manage and protect our public lands, many dedicating their lives to the profession. Today, Jennifer and I are talking with BLM National Medical Director, Dr. Drew Southert. Welcome, Dr. Drew. Thank you. Welcome, Dr. Drew. We were going to have a operational medical support program manager as well, Tyler McKellen, but he couldn't make it, unfortunately. Yeah, he had surgery and he's recovering, so <laughs> yeah, he'll be fine. <laughs> yes. yes. That's good. And you're in the medical profession, so. Yeah. His outlook is good. <laughs> yes, that's good. But good we hear. Yeah. But we do have to say that Dr. Drew is wearing this nice uniform today. So. Yeah. So why are you in a uniform today? Well, that's a good question about the uniform. Now, this position is actually a public health service commissioned officer role. And so I, I didn't even know what the public health service was before this job. And it's a, it's a really unique organization and happy to be part of it, but that's why we wear a uniform. And so for people that don't know, the public health service has been around actually a long time. It's a uniform service, so we're actually considered you know, active duty in terms of that respect. We're not armed. Maybe we're armed with stethoscopes or other <laughs> things, but we protect the, the public health. And I think it came into a little bit bigger view with COVID. I mean, the Surgeon General, why he's called the Surgeon General, he's part of the public health service, or she. And it started back a long time ago with, with kind of the merchant ships and trade and having to keep sailors healthy. And over time has kind of evolved into different aspects and we're commissioned. So we go through like a, a basic training and we you know, have an oath and all of that. And we serve basically in the same sort of military ranks as other military officers. And so there's a lot of different types. I'm a clinical public health officer. So I, I'm in a clinical billet, meaning I can do medicine, but there's quite a few of them that are actually, we have environmental health officers, like industrial hygienists. And so it's a pretty wide variety of professionals that are in the public health service. And they're all throughout the United States. There are some international as well. And as far as I know, I think I'm the only one in the Bureau of Land Management. I think I'm the first one, but there's actually quite a few in the Department of Interior and quite a few that go to the park. So sometimes you might see like what looks like a Navy officer out testing water at a national park, and that's a public health service officer. So oh, that's why you might see it. So, yeah. And we wear kind of Navy Coast Guard uniforms. I tell people it's kind of unusual presenting in a landlocked state a <laughs> Coast Guard uniform to firefighters, but, that you know, that's how it works. So, I was wondering what the USPHS stood for on your uniform, but now I know. It's not postal. No, nope, not postal. <laughs> public health service, yeah. Yes, public health service. So, and you're the only one in wildland fire. Do you mainly serve wildland fire? Yeah. So the the way it works is within the federal government, a lot of agencies either can't or don't have a position description for a like a physician per se. So, for example, BLM never really had a a PD. I've learned that lingo, right? PD. It's like really hard <laughs> to create. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so we never had a PD for a physician, and to get that passed and a lot of things would, would require quite a bit. And so they basically have, you know, memorandums of understanding with the public health service and the public health service can, for, I guess, lack of a better word, detail an officer to that agency. And so I'm officially, you know, hired and employed per se by the public health service, but permanently detailed to the Department of Interior, Park Service, and then to the BLM. And so 
I, I function essentially as a BLM person, but that's where I, I live in terms of pay structure and everything else like that. Are you, like some of the officers are like on four years? Is it, do you have a service time or is it just indefinite? Yeah, you can, it's a little unique in terms of, that's a little different than military. You do take a service obligation and you don't have to, but there's obviously some incentives to do so. But most people can choose, you know, either none, one, two, three, or four. Gotcha. So most people are there for their career and some people are actually trained when they're in training, they're in the public health service. So there's a variety and I think currently I'm the only one in a, maybe a clinical billet doing wildland fire. There have been some other people, and there's other people within DOI that study fire and are involved in fire that are public health officers as well. But uh, to my knowledge right now, I'm the only one that's specifically dedicated to wildland fire. Although I guess I should say that the Office of Wildland Fire just hired a public health officer in mental health. So uh, I guess I can't really say that anymore. <laughs> Well, you're doing the, the more the safety and, and this operational medical support program, right. correct? And that's what we're actually here to talk about today um, is the OMSP or Operational Med- Med- Medical Support Program. But before we get into the questions on that, um, how did you get started? Tell us a little bit about your background. Sure. So the long, long version is, I'll try not to bore you. <laughs> you can edit it out if you need to. But... The, you know, in, I went to college and I'd always wanted to be a firefighter. My dad was a firefighter. I thought it'd be kind of fun, but I was thinking structure fire. So I went to college at University of Boulder and, or I should say University of Colorado at Boulder and had a great time there and decided I was going to volunteer as a firefighter. So I went through a structure academy, became an EMT, worked a little bit on their ambulance. And they had this wildland fire division that I really didn't really think much about when I first got there, but turns out we were pretty slow department and didn't go on a lot of fire calls. And so I got to go on a, uh, get trained as a wildland firefighter, at which point we actually did go on a bunch of those. And ironically, the first one I ever went on, like literally out of S-130, 190, like the week later, went up there, was kind of where my parents lived. And it was a, a pretty big urban interface wildfire. And that night went in, it was all on fire, camped out was part of like an initial attack engine strike team that, you know, it's, it's initial attack and a big fire. We have no idea where we are. And <laughs> I'm sure a lot of people can <laughs> relate to that here, but ended up actually getting burned over in a house. And one of our crew members ended up going to the hospital and I was like the EMT at the time in the back of a type six engine. So it was like, sounds bad, but it was like one of the most exciting days ever, right? Like, I was like, this is an awesome job. I have to, like, yeah. <laughs> I've got to do this all the time. This is what every day must be like for well and firefighters. And of course, that's, you know, thankfully not what every yeah. day is like. But that was my intro to, to wildland fire. And so for the next couple of years, I worked on that crew and did some mitigation, mostly engine stuff. Got to come to Idaho for the first time in the back of a, a fire engine. Thought I was going to do that, but then ended up somehow getting into medicine, you know, things change. And, and that's what I did. So I went to medical school at the University of Colorado and then did training. And so most physicians go on to do like specialty training in minds and emergency medicine. So went down to the University of New Mexico. They have a really good ER training program. And my wife is a family doc. And so they have a family medicine residency as well. And so we 
did what's called a couples match, which sounds really oh. cute. <laughs> but it allows you to, to go to the same place and do training. So I did that for three years. And when we got done, we decided we wanted to move somewhere, you know, fun and outdoor related and thought we'd go back to Colorado. We were both from there, but ended up coming up to Idaho, really liking it and decided to make a go of it here. It had St. Al's, which is where I've worked for the last 12 years as an ER doc. And that's an awesome job because it's a trauma center. It's a super high acuity place, um, but you can live in Boise. You know, you don't have to live in like New York City or Chicago and you can still see all these interesting cases and patients and really do the full spectrum of emergency medicine. So did that and I had been working with the Forest Service a little bit, just being a medical director for them here in the Region 4 area and enjoyed that. And there was a, a firefighter named Matt Weekland who I think was no longer with the BLM but had been for a long time and he was running the Montana program and I was working with them for a little bit. And he basically said, you know, we're, we're looking for a national medical director. Um, so I don't know how long we're going to need your services. And I said, okay, that's fine. By the way, would you send me that <laughs> announcement? I'm kind of interested. And he's like, oh, sure. So he sent it to me and literally it was like outdated and hadn't been filled the first two times. I think they flew it something like that. And it said this thing about the public health service, which I had no idea what that was. <laughs> and, um, but on the bottom, it had like Paul Hone and Chris Delaney and I think Ted Mason at times like contact. And so I literally just wrote them an email and said, you know, uh, I'm, I'm interested. I have no idea what this is. I have a great job, not really looking to leave. But, um, you know, it's one of the few things I've ever considered leaving my current position would be is if I could work for a federal fire going agency as a medical director. And uh, I didn't hear back for, you know, like a week or two. And then I think Paul, like, what did he call me and was like, yeah, well, we can talk to you. <laughs> and uh, it took about two years to get hired into the process, and here I am. So um, never could have, you know, that wasn't what I went to school for. I didn't, like, think this this pathway didn't exist, right? This job never existed for when I was initially training. So it's been really, I think, a, a lot of cool events and fortunate accidents that led me to where I am. So probably like most people's lives in retrospect, but uh, it's really cool. Yeah. Right. Well, and you think we, yeah, it's a, probably a job we've really needed for a long time, just with the, the safety aspects of the job and then for medical support of our firefighters. So, yeah. Which brings me to medical support program. <laughs> Can you explain what that is exactly? Yeah, it doesn't exactly roll off the tongue. No, right? <laughs> that's oh. not an easy thing. Operational medical <laughs> yeah. support program. When I first came, I was like, what are you calling it? Why don't we just call it like the BLM EMS program? But there's some reasons we don't. And, and actually, I've come to really like the name. But yeah, we call it the OMSP or Operational Medical Support Program. And so, you know, above all, I, I think I just want people to know like that that program is designed for the care of our own is, is kind of our slogan. And really what that is supposed to mean is a little bit dependent on the situation, obviously, but our, our intent or what we've been kind of charged with is to provide care to our field going, mostly fire personnel at this point, but that might expand a little bit, but the BLM fire going personnel, and if they have an accident or injury, we want someone there to provide initial care to them. And so that's our, our main focus. We spend a lot of time kind of training specifically for injuries that we would encounter. So burns, 
you know, fractures, dislocations. Those are injuries that we're more specialized in or spend more time on than maybe regular EMS agencies. We train specifically for that initial resuscitation. But we also train for the incident medical leadership. So when we've looked back historically, there's been some issues with that. So we train for that. So we work on the medical incident report and incident within an incident, these sort of things. And we spend a lot of time on actually patient extraction. So we don't primarily want to like be a transporting agency for our patients, although that, that has happened occasionally. We, we really want to train to get them out of this dangerous environment, like the wildland environment where other maybe EMS crews can't get to and, and get them out of that environment, um, provide the initial care, and then get them into the, the local EMS or, or higher level of care per se. So that's, that's our goal. That's what we function and train to do. Um, and I think it's unique. It's different than like tactical medicine. Uh, it's different than regular EMS medicine. It's different than like austere mountain medicine. It's, it's kind of a little, it's really nuanced, but it takes a little piece of all those. And, you know, until now, I don't think it's really maybe been recognized as, as quite as special and unique as it is. And so there's some things that we do that are maybe more aggressive than they would do in certain areas. And there's some things we do that are much less aggressive and finding that balance is really what we're, we're continuing to do and um, what we're working towards. What's an example of the more aggressive? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, it, it, there's a couple of things. One, you know, patient extraction, like most, most urban places don't have short haul per se. And so how that's a fairly aggressive way to get someone out. You know, there's risk and danger with transporting a patient like that. Um, from a helicopter. From a, yeah, helicopter. short haul from a helicopter. Um, and I guess, you know, I'm not a short haul expert. I'm actually going to go to the class this year, I hope. But, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, it's it's basically taking someone on a, oh, for those who don't know, you know, the helicopter puts basically a, a line out there to 100 feet or so and connects a, a patient to it and they can pull them up out of a very tight, narrow spot and deposit them, you know, somewhere where there's some other uh, vehicle or another helicopter or something like that, which is very useful if you're in tree environments or getting picked off the side of a, of a mountain or something like that. So that's an example where that's actually a tool that isn't always available, but is in our toolbox that that's aggressive and probably more so than a lot of folks may have access to. Um, so we train our EMTs uh, at the basic level to do some advanced airway stuff that uh, is within kind of advanced scopes of practice for, probably most EMS agencies. And the reason is because if you need an airway that quickly, there's not really going to be time for any other EMS agency to respond. And that's one of those kind of things that might kill you rather quickly. And so that's that's a couple of examples, I think, of where we're a little more, I don't even know if aggressive is the right word, but I have an expanded scope of practice at that point. How long is that training that you're talking about that people go through? Well, the, the initial EMT and EMR, we use mostly EMTs and EMRs, um, that depends a little bit on where they get it, but EMTs training is usually a couple of months, and EMR I think is a week or two depending on how intense you're doing, et cetera. So they usually come to us with that, and then from there we do an onboarding process and what we call authorization, and that's where we have about another, I don't know, 10 hours or so of training that we do to kind of provide those skills, and then on top of that we usually do four to 12 hours in the field of, of training every year. So that gets them up to the skills we, we do and, and utilize. So there was really no 
program like this before you came on board, was there? Not exactly. Each state was kind of doing their own thing, and mostly they were they were working under the EMS systems within their state. And so I, I would say there some were more successful than others uh, for a variety of reasons, but there wasn't a national cohesive program. And and that's really what we're shooting for is to have a program that kind of has the same minimum standards, minimum qualifications, minimum equipments, minimum skills. And so if you're in Colorado one day and you get shipped out to Oregon the next day and one of your firefighters is injured and there's an OMSP provider, they're at least going to have the same baseline minimums. And that's what we're going for. And is this trying to get like more of our employees involved with the program to be available like on a, on each crew or have it left like an EMT on each crew? Yeah, that, you know, what the specific number is, I, I don't know. So like should each shot crew have, you know, two OMSP providers or three? We're not at that level yet of knowledge. I mean, I can give you rough, a rough number is basically 10% of our fire going personnel seems to be the number we're shooting for. And how do you describe a, you know, which was a fire going personnel, you know, et cetera, is kind of a little nuance. But, you know, what we've seen is the states that have, you know, 300 people that are kind of field going frontline firefighters that probably have 30-ish EMTs in the, in the area. And so I don't know if that's going to be enough or if that's too much yet. Um, but I think that's probably the right number. I mean, one of my goals is to make it the expectation that if you have a problem, you're going to get an OMSP provider or, you know, you should have an OMSP provider available. And it, right now I think it's kind of the exception that we have that because we just don't have that, the numbers or we're still building the program per se. So when you talk about OMSP providers, how does that relate to like EM, like being an actual EMT? So the what's the difference, I guess? Yeah. So an EMT typically is trained to be an ambulance attendant. I'm a broad statement, but that they're trained to be an ambulance attendant in an urban environment, pick up a patient, you know, after a 911 call, do their EMT stuff, and then drive them to a hospital that's, you know, five or 10 minutes away. And they function under like a department of EMS, and the department of EMS is charged by a state to take care of the general public. And so, you know, they train for that patient population and that environment, and they have the responsibility to do that. So, you know, if we call 911 right now, we're in downtown Boise, you're going to get eight county paramedics and Boise Fire, and if you need to go to the hospital, they're going to take you to one of the local hospitals. Um, and so we have that same core group of skills, like that EMT skill, but we spend a little more time and focus now on on essentially like 18 to 50-year-old people, their medical diseases. We do talk a little bit about children and people over the age of 50 that might be out in the field, but for the most part, like our field-going crews are are that target population. And so the, the diseases that affect them are going to be a little different than the diseases that affect the general population, if that makes sense. And we also don't have the primary responsibility to take care of the general public. Um, we'll, we won't like ever withhold or not treat someone, you know, that would be unethical. (laughs) But, you know, we are not the primary 911 service when we're out there. Um, We're helping other federal employees for the most part or potentially cooperators or contractors on a a fire who are injured. And so our charge and our 
direction and all that sort of stuff is is different than what a normal EMS department is. Okay, that makes sense. I know you've kind of talked about this a little bit, the history of the program, basically beginning the program. Why is it important for a wildland fire? And I think you talked about this a little bit too. Yeah, I mean, I go back to when I was, you know, an EMT in Colorado. Um, you know, I, I, maybe I should have, I don't know. I didn't really know who my medical director was. I hadn't really practiced these skills. I was, you know, quote, the EMT, uh, which, you know, I, it was, it's an uncomfortable situation, right? And you'd show up to fire and everybody like, okay, well, you're an EMT. We'll let you know if anything happens. And well, great. great. Well, <laughs> nice. Okay. Can we call 911 still sure. or something? You know, like wonderful. I'm not sure what we're going to do here. So, you know, I think that was the mentality for a while. We, and not that it was intentional. There's been a lot of really, I think, good people that have always wanted this, but, um, it, there's a lot of legal area here. There's a lot of state and federal regulations. And in the background too, I should say, EMS is becoming more of a professional career path, I guess, not only for EMTs and paramedics, but also at the physician level. Now we have fellowships in emergency medicine. So you can do your ER fellowship, become an ER doctor, and then you can do a fellowship specifically to train in EMS services. And so I think that combination has kind of led to a more professional uh, expectation across the board. And we had some fairly significant incidents within wildfire. I mean, the Dutch Creek incident was one uh, with Andy Palmer and, and these other sort of issues that in retrospect, you know, we could have done a little better potentially. And so I think that and kind of the lack of oversight and true programs led each agency to kind of come up with, you know, what they wanted to do or how they were going to going to change that. And so that's kind of a long history of like why I think it is. It's, it's interesting from, I'm, I was never really a federal employee, but talking to all the federal folks, this is really a ground up swell, right? It was like the field is asking for this. And so leadership was responding to the field and saying, okay, how are we going to make this happen? And I know Paul Hone will tell a really good story about all this, but it's really like a, an eight, 10 year adventure for the BLM where they sat in a room and were like, okay. And they were literally making phone calls to like the, the docs that run some of the Homeland Security programs and be like, how do we, how do we do this for our employees? You know, this is something we recognize. And they said, well, you should, you know, get a medical director and they'd have to be a federal doctor and all this sort of stuff. Um, and then you can create a training program and all this sort of stuff. So that's, I think the origin of it. Um, but it really came from the ground level saying, you know, if we're, we're taking people out in the field that are getting injured, we have an obligation to, to provide some sort of care for them. Always seems like there has to be some kind of incident or something or multiple before we realize that we need to make change. We kind of like have our 10 and 18 and watch out situations. And then also it's like, oh, now we need medical stuff. So then we have because of an incident. So it's, that's kind of how we build our, <laughs> seems to how we build our stuff is from an incident. And they're like, oh yeah, we need this now. Yeah. Or maybe the response could have yeah. been a little bit better. We do have medical support on incident management teams, obviously, but they're not always out on the fire line with the firefighters. Yeah, and that's a good um, distinction with our program. You know, we we obviously work a lot of big fires. Intended this program was is not necessarily to you know staff the incident medical units of these big fires. That being said, we're we're going to be part of it and. 
that there's a lot of overlap. And so helping design those other larger systems is part of what this position and the national manager do help with at the NWCG level. And the future of that, I think, is a little unclear at the moment. Like, how are we, what are we going to do? Because there's, again, we're using systems, I think we're probably outdated. I don't know how outdated, but we're not really up to speed right now as far as the larger instant medical unit. And that's not a knock on the people doing it. It's a, it's just kind of a, a statement of, you know, we probably, it's 2023, 20, like this is the new realities of, of where we're at and the things that we can do and how do we change those systems to better reflect that. And now we have someone working for us that can help yeah, <laughs> that <yeah>. change. <laughs> and you're right. One of the interesting things about, so we're in the safety office and I'm always, my life has never been in prevention, but safety is kind of prevention. And I think the second part of safety is response. Um, and so my whole life has been focused on response, right? When, when safety didn't go well, that's when, you know, that's what I've been charged with from an ER doctor, right? No, like no one wakes up in the day and is like, oh, I'm going to, I think I'll plan my ER visit today. You know, right. it's like, oh, I was driving down the highway and something happened. Boom, we got a car accident. Now we're there. So um, the the interesting thing about response is that then drives prevention, right? So we start to learn, and this is what I hope for the program somewhat in the future is we will start seeing, you know, more of the injuries we have, what sort of things we need to prepare for, what sort of responses we're involved with. And then we can lead that back into the safety folks and say, hey, we're, we're noticing everyone's cutting their hand on this Pulaski or whatever it is, you know, is there a way to better design that? Or, you know, every jumper is one of the more common injuries is, you know, this sort of ankle injury. And it's because of this sort of axial loading when they fall, you know, is there a way that we could, you know, change something we're doing? So that's, that's an interesting part that comes from or programs gear. like could this. Be with the gear or yeah. something like that that can yep. help. Exactly. Yeah. Gear and all that sort of stuff. So um, I think we'll see more, of, of that happening as these programs develop. Response. It's kind of like a circle. It continues yeah. to the infinity <laughs> loop, though. Yeah. It never ends. <laughs> well, it's kind of like fire, too, you know, the circle. Yeah. How did you get involved with the program? I think you talked about that, too, a little bit. Yeah, I mean, the main, it was kind of that happy accident of, of working in emergency departments. Really, I, I had the idea of providing some sort of care to wildland firefighters a while ago. Um, actually, ironically, I sent an email to Tyler Cowan in 2012 when I was kind of doing some telemedicine stuff saying, this would be a great thing for wildland fire. And kind of through those, you know, happy accidents and connections and whatever, uh, this that job became available. So I think there was a lot of parallel activities going on and just happened to be the right place at the right time. It's really, I look back and I'm like, there's just no way... <laughs> you know, fortuitous, fate, whatever, those pieces really lined up, which are all kind of odd pieces. And so um, I, I do laugh. The the first time I saw one of the announcements for um, one of the Forest Service contracts come out, it said it wanted an ER doctor with like so many years of experience, EMS fellow, and had all these things listed. I thought that sounds like a great person for this job. There's literally two of those people yeah. in the state of Idaho, and I know them both, <laughs> <laughs> and neither of them is applying for this position. <laughs> and so it took a long time for us to to get um, both professionally from the medical standpoint, but from, I think, the um, agencies and fire-going personnel to understand what we really wanted and we're asking for, right? Um, because, you know, we write, or I don't know, I should say we, but like BLM writes oil and gas leases and contracts and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But 
they've never written like a medical director contract. So it took a while for that to kind of come up. And um, yeah, I mean, I think we talked about how everything else. So Yeah. I know that, well, it seems like, yes, fire, obviously there's incidents and need quick medical treatment. But even, you know, you talk about oil and gas and there's possibilities for other things, trail maintenance crews or Mm -hmm. anybody out in range management. I mean, I think it's important to really recognize the need for a medical program. Yeah. Anytime I think of the river rangers, um, you know, we have people that are a ways off from a lot of medical care. Right. And, um, fire is obviously a major component of what we do and probably one of the more hazardous environments we work in, but it's also one of the more well-supported, interestingly enough. Um, I always talk to our medics, our, our EMTs and providers and they're, you know, this austere, austere environment care is kind of the, the term that's thrown out. And, you know, I, I think we do a great job as, uh, as a country, as a, as a federal agencies of supporting wildland fire, like we have a lot of resources when we're on a fire for the most part. I mean, there's exceptions to that, but you know, if you're in a third world country, like say you're up at Everest or Nepal or, you know, these base camps are doing some remote mountaineering and in China, you know, that that's really austere stuff where <laughs> even if you get out, you may not be around a healthcare system. And so I think we do a pretty good job. We've got a lot of tools at our disposal that are that are different than what um, other people have. I understand a pilot program was conducted. Is that something more Tyler has more information on? No, that's that's me. Tell us a little bit yeah. about that. <laughs> no, so um, as you mentioned, we we've never done this before, right? As a BLM, we've had different variations of state programs, but we wanted to to um, try a national program, like what would it be like? And so you don't just want to roll it out across a nation and like day one, here we go, boom. Um, that would never really work. So talking with Grant and Megan, we kind of said, well, let's do a, a pilot program with some states. And we tried to get um, some programs that already were stood up. So Nevada, for instance, had a, a was one of our largest programs and had been around for a long time. So at Idaho, so they both uh, came on. We had a few smaller programs, um, so Montana Dakotas uh, came on, and then we had uh, the Smoke Jumper program, which is actually kind of a large program for the number of jumpers, but um, they're very centralized and at NIFSI, so that was a good addition. So we had those programs, and then we had uh, Utah, who has never had a program before, come on, and that was going to give us a look at like what it was like to bring a program that had never been on before. And then we had Wyoming that had a smaller but kind of established program as well. So those were the states and programs that came on initially. And that was in 2022 is actually, I think, our start date because I made it intentionally. It was February 22nd, 22. So it was always going to be 022222. So I should remember it. (laughs) Very nice. Um, So we started that day. uh, And we worked with those programs a lot and wrote basically our policies and procedure manual, which no one really wants to do, but it's important. And we wrote a whole protocol book. Um, we got them passed by Grant and uh, basically got these internal memorandums saying this is what our authority is. And there was a lot of work with the solicitors on the back end as well. And got those already, trained people, and then launched a program and saw kind of what would happen. And um, from that, we, we learned, you know, quite a bit. And we ran it all the way until, well, I mean, we're still kind of in it or running it. 
but uh, we said maybe I think 200, close to 200 EMTs we did some training on. And then of those, we had about 140 that fully got authorized, were able to pass everything. And we had roughly, I think at the end of the year, around 35 or so, 40 patient interactions where we provided care, which is actually, I think, pretty good considering we basically had maybe five the year before. And I don't know if it's because we weren't documenting them or we weren't really, you know, doing them or if we now have provided a service that people are using. But that's our, our baseline. And that was only, again, with those about half of the BLM states involved. Um, we saw, let's, I mean, we saw, let's say, shoulder dislocations. We saw some broken femurs, um, saw facial injuries, you know, typical lacerations, heat exhaustion. So pretty much everything we anticipated and trained for, we, we saw, not obviously every crew saw that, but uh, one of our providers did. I mean, we had difficult cases. We had uh, um, some traffic accidents with some general public where people died. Uh, we had multi-casualty incidents and um, provided CPR in one of the airports, you know, as one of our providers was traveling to a fire. So uh, we, we saw a whole variety of things. That's kind of what we trained for. And I think it proved the utility of the program and kind of proved that the training we were doing was right. It proved how um, it, the policies and procedures were in place to, to create the program. So that ended, I mean, roughly October of 2022 was kind of the end of fire season. And then we've decided to, to go forward and continue to roll it out. And I think this year we're going to bring on most of the other programs, most of them before the start of fire season, maybe a few that come on later in the season. But I, I think at this point, by the end of 2023, we'll at least have the initial program for all of the states in the, in the you know, BLM. So that's a good thing. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not going to be perfect. I'm not going to yeah. Right. It'll take a little while. And, and success for some of those places might look like we have four EMTs, but that's 400% more than we had, you know, the year before. Well, and there's some places that are smaller areas. Yeah. And, um, you know, the goal is eventually to have a whole OMSP force uh, that's trained and can, can intervene, but that's going to take us a little while. That's really good, though, for your first pilot year. I mean, I was going to ask you those numbers, and those are that's impressive numbers, so that's great. Yeah, and the weird, the, the surprising one um, you know, our program, like I said, is not an EMS program, not geared for the public, but we run into a lot of car accidents with the general public. And it makes sense, right? But where do we run into car accidents with the general public? It's not like downtown Boise. It's in these remote areas. And both of these, are there's more than two, but two of them specifically were super remote highways with really injured people. And our crews were first on, first on arrival you know, did really good care and it took, you know, the, the local EMS services a long time to get there just because of their location. And so I think in both of those instances, you know, the BLM firefighters had a, had a really positive impact on the, on the public, which, um, you know, ultimately we're, we're all federal servants. So that's probably what we should be doing. And driving is one of the big things that they look at because the hours and and miles. I know some of the crews track how many miles they drive through the year, but I mean they're always driving, getting from one incident to the next or project. So that doesn't. I mean that doesn't surprise me at all to see some of that. Yeah, one of the things I've been really surprised at with the BLM is how much 
We'll drive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, lot, let's do lot a training. <laughs> yeah. And they're like, it's down here. I'm like, okay, so we're flying. Like, no, we're driving. I'm like, really? Because there's no airports. <laughs> we drive everywhere. <laughs> yeah. That's been a, a shocker to me. <laughs> yeah. There's, I mean, it's to see some of the numbers, hours, and miles behind crews that are behind the wheel. I mean, it's, it is shocking. Yeah. See, like some of our areas just uh, where I used to work on the um, Boise district, BLM was like, oh, we have a fire out in the desert. Oh, it's a six to seven hour drive just to get to it. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah, when I worked in Battle Mountain, I'd go to Battle Mountain. Like, oh, you need to go to Tonopah. And I'm like, oh, okay. That's yeah. a long drive <laughs> all the way through southern, the central Nevada. So it's it's good that people are out on the road, too, yeah. Yeah. able to help or need it. So how can someone be come a part of the LMSP program? Thank you for asking that. Um, so they have to be a BLM employee. Um, that's one of the one of the foundations. There's some AD stuff that uh, is a little bit, you know, different, which which is a pathway. But generally, you have to be a BLM employee, and you, for the most part, are going to come in with an EMT or EMR license or certification in a state or your national registry. And if you've got those, the the next processes are really easy. You basically would contact your state coordinator, say, "Hey, I'm interested in being a part of the program." And then we have our onboarding process and training that you'd go to. So you have to do a, an annual proficiency evaluation and training every 13 months. So it's really similar to like an RT-130. Okay, like firefighter refresher. Yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, instead of pulling out the fire shelter and putting it on, we're going to pull out our um, laryngeal mask airways and our epinephrine shots and, you know, practice those. Uh, and then we're going to have a little bit of didactic training and you know, one of the challenges we face is, unlike firefighting, like I think most firefighters, they train on something in the spring and they kind of use it throughout the year, right? I mean, they're going to put fire in the ground, they're going to dig line, they're going to use a chainsaw, turn a pump on. Um, we hope that you don't use these skills again during the rest of the, the year, right? And so kind of by definition, most people aren't going to do anything with it other than train, potentially and, and I'm hoping most of our EMTs and crews are training, and I think they do a pretty good job throughout the year. But it's not a, you know, these, these are fatigable skills and knowledge. And so um, that's why it's really important that, uh, you know, there's some CME requirements and stuff like that that are outside of the program that keep your, your EMT license up. But um, that's why it's important we do this training every year. So that's that's the main way people can get on board. If someone's really interested, some of the other crews do put on, like, EMT courses. So even if you're not an EMT, um, you can go and get that training. It's a little bit state specific and some states are offering that, some aren't, but that's the basic way you'd get involved with the program. Do you, do you have to be in Wildland Fire or just, just to be a LIM employee? Yeah, good question. <laughs> at at this point, you have to be in the fire program. Or at least have qualified fire. Yeah, involved. so you don't, you don't have to be primary fire. Um, we have plenty of LEOs or law enforcement officers that are in our program. We have some like rangers and stuff like that. Our, our basic authority at this point comes from the director of fire and aviation. And so you have to be fire related. And what kind of our minimum for that is you have to have a red card and be able to go on fire. So if you've taken the S-130-190, you know, and have our basic fire fighter course and have um, a red card, then that's within our program and you can, you can be part of it. So if you're not a primary fire person, and you want to be part of it, that's the, the route you need to go. So 
where do people go to find out information? Is there a form they fill out or a contact for you? Right. There is a coordinator for each program, and that's usually a collateral duty. So they can contact them. They can also contact Tyler or myself. And then there is a website through NIFSI and I believe it's, it's on the BLM side anyway. But if you go on the BLM page, there's a program and it'll say operational medical support and they can click there. It'll talk about the program a little bit and get a, the email contacts for that. Where do you see the program going for the future? Well, the, the near future, you know, now five and 10 years, uh, if I were to, to guess. So I'm hoping at the end of this year, we're going to get you know all the all the states to have their basic program. And then it's kind of watering and feeding and growing that so that we all, it, my hope is every program becomes pretty good um, and that we've got a, a good cadre of these sort of firefighters that are training these life-saving skills and, you know, incident medical leadership and these sort of things. And then from there, it's kind of endless what we could do. And it's going to depend a little bit on what, what the needs are really. Um, I can foresee this being more of a a BLM wide, you know, type of service at some point that would require some other things. Um, I could see, you know, in the future us working with other interagency aspects. I mean, we're, we are always trying to work interagency. The Forest Service has a program right now as well. And the Forest Service and myself, uh, their medical director and program directors are constantly talking about, you know, what could we do better and these sort of things. So I think that's part of it. Um, you know, as we get better at the foundation, we can do even more advanced type of um, skills and interventions. Once we, you know, again, get really good at what we're doing, uh, I think it's kind of the analogy, like, I want to create the, like, the dependable, like, Chevy or Toyota truck. Like, you get in, you know what you're getting, it starts, it's going to, like, do a really good job for you. And once we have that, we can start adding, like, you know, little nuances to it and, and make it a faster car or whatever you want. But we really heated want to seats. get heated seats. Heated yeah. seats. <laughs> That's where I was going, right? Heated there. seats, yeah, whatever, whatever you Air know, kind of floats your boat on that. But, um, you know, that that's where I see the near the near future. And uh, we're in an exciting time right now for wildland fire health and well-being. I mean, I know that's kind of almost like a cliche word at this point. And um, with the recent bill money and all that sort of stuff, there's a lot of movement in this area. And probably will spike and then come back down to some other sort of normal level. But, you know, at this point, I, I think the future of how we're delivering care on the fire line, both at the initial injury, kind of what we're focused on, um, how we deliver care on large incidents um, at the medical unit level and what the appropriate level of care to, do, to deliver there and some of the technologies we see now like telemedicine and telehealth, that's all still kind of out in the air and to determine I think it's really exciting because there's a lot of possibilities there, but how it gets deployed and and um, the utility of it is still kind of to be determined. But I think we're going to know a lot more about that, you know, in the next five and, and 10 years as things develop. And the nice thing about the the BLM and this program is we've we've got a seat at that table and um, we've got the you know people that are actively engaged, not only from my position and, and say Tyler's, but on our, our leadership teams. And it's a, it's a major priority for them. Uh, and, you know, we're, we work interagency. We're at NIFSI. It's, you know, that's, that's why NIFSI exists. Right. <laughs> and, um, you know, for example, Tyler's going to be the, the chair of the EMC committee, which is the Emergency, Medi- Emergency Medical Committee. For NWCG. The, yeah, for NWCG. 
And that whole goal of that committee is to to look at these things on an interagency level to make positive change. So from the BLM standpoint, I think that's really positive. Yeah, it's great. And I think it it kind of opens the door or could open the door for a lot of other people that you know are interested in wildland fire, but maybe also interested in medical, kind of combining the two. Yeah, you make a really yeah. good point there. And I said I don't really understand the position description. You know, yeah. Not being a, I'm outside of the GS. Like I'm in the officer military rank stuff, so it still eludes me. But I know it's very important. <laughs> um, but you're right. I think until now, and and maybe some people would even argue currently, um, getting your EMT didn't really quote help you. Now um, we've got positions like Tyler's, um, and that's a national, you know, position for someone who's been an EMT in the field. And we've got state-level positions. Some of these coordinators, like Idaho and Nevada, have a full-time position dedicated to this. They do not just the OMSP portion, but they do some other health and welfare thing, or health and, health and safety. Yeah, health yeah. and safety. <laughs> and um, so you're just saying health and welfare because it's <laughs> yeah. part of the rest of my job. But, um, you know, we're trying to develop um, some career ladder stuff so that we can get the, the operational people these really good engine captains, you know, that, that are EMTs or, or whoever else um, that, that has a skill set, recognize that it's, it's, a, it's now useful and it's, it's something we're developing and then they can have some professional development. I mean, I would love it one day if, you know, the, the safety officers of the BLM um, were also had been, you know, in the national OMSP program directors or managers at some point and, had been a state coordinator at some point. I mean, that's a very natural kind of flow that I can see happening. And um, we've talked, you know, um, I should have mentioned this, but we've talked about, you know, in the future trying to, to just retail in instructors and get people some time and grade from an operation standpoint where they can come and help teach or develop these skills with other people, you know, around the country. Um, and so I, I think we'll see that kind of progression, which will only make the program stronger. And I'm hoping to be a place where, you know, if, if you're a firefighter and you have a, I mean, right now you have quite a option of where you want to go. Right. And obviously the BLM wants to have you come work for us. And right. so <laughs> this is kind of like, to me, it's a competitive thing. Like we could, we, we want to be a place where um, not only firefighters want to come, but EMTs want to come. Um, and, you know, frankly, a lot of these people are going to be firefighters, they get their EMT and maybe they decide they want to be, you know, in medicine. And that's great too. I mean, that's, it's providing other opportunities. I've, I have a couple of PAs and uh, one medical student I've worked with over the years that were firefighters and EMTs kind of like myself. And they went on to, to pursue medicine as their career. And so I, I see that as positive, you know, even, even for the people who don't retain, if we can get people interested in medicine, that's a, that's a, a great thing too. So. Well, it seems like we have, I know a lot of firefighters that I've worked with that have gone to work for structure fire departments as well. And that would be kind of a plus too, to have that kind of medical background as well. Because it seems like they end up responding to a lot of medical emergencies, right. not just fires. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, what I've heard, I don't know, I, <laughs> <laughs> is that, you know, one of the negatives is if people get this training, then they, they yep, even go exactly. to a structure department, right? But to me that... Yeah, I can see that that being a short-term loss. Um, but I, th I think if we're giving people opportunities and those people are good people and they're going out into those career fields, I mean, that's that's still an important career field. And we've been able to help help 
good people get there, it's a win. And if we have the right pathways to keep them, I think that would be even better, right? If they are looking at, I could go to a structure department or, you know, I might get to be a state coordinator and then, you know, for example, Tyler's like. Kind of opens more doors. Yeah, maybe. Op- yeah, it opens doors. And um, I will say I've heard, you know, that um, there's no benefit to me getting my EMT. That's kind of a, uh-huh. a comment. And I totally understand where, you know, there's not a new pay structure, these sort of things. Um, I will just tell you know the listeners out there, like, th- those things are being discussed. It's, it's very complicated as for those of us who have sat in these conversations. But um, this is one way to recognize the career ladders. But I also think there's some, you know, personal gain you get from, from everything you do. And so um, having your EMT may open some doors for you that you don't even know exist right now. And so that's what I would say to people who are in those positions, like you may get your EMT and maybe you you don't do anything with it for five years and it goes away, but that's pretty rare. Uh, yeah. Most people, you know, use that skill and maybe they get hired on to the, to a shot crew that they were, you know, equally as competitive with the other person, but the crew's like, man, I could really use an EMT. I mean, that's going to be a benefit. It's never something that's going to hold you back. Um, so I think I would look at it a little bit like that for some of our younger firefighters. So like, on the red cards or our incident qualification cards, we have EMTs. Right. Is this OMSP program, is that like something you could look for for future like qualification for that? Yeah. So you, at this point, there's a federal supplement for it. And it does state in there if you're part of a federal program that you can put that on your red card. So you certainly can, if you're part of the OMSP, um, put that on your red card. We have had some firefighters do that. Uh, it's their personal choice or, you know, I, there's, I think that gets complicated mm-hmm. too, whether they want to be listed as that because yeah. um, sometimes they don't want to go out. But what I've seen, most of our firefighters aren't going out as line EMTs during the main season because they're a primary hell attack, you know, their primary Hot engine. Shots. Yeah. So they don't have a lot of time. But on the uh, kind of extended sides of the season, maybe when their their crew's already off and they want to go out as a line EMT, um, that's a possibility for them. So, yeah, another career development. Those I, We've had a few that, that have gone and do that. I wouldn't say it's, you know, most people think are I just want to go you know, to, I don't know, wherever they go, Hawaii. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I just didn't know. I mean, I know, like, there's an EMT, but if that was something through the interagency group from NWCG, if that's, like, a qualification that could be pursued or looked at. Yep, and so they currently, if you're an OMSP provider, you can put that on your on your card if you choose. In closing, did we miss anything? Anything else that you want to talk about? I will say what has really been eye-opening Advice coming. to firefighters? <laughs> <laughs> What, yeah, well, if you if you screw up enough being a firefighter, like, I, I didn't mention this one, but I'll tell you, like, I did fire school, you know, liked it and all that sort of stuff, and I had to go to medicine. Well, I literally applied to smoke temper schools and to medical schools at the same time, and uh, I got into medical school. I, I didn't get into, into smoke temper school, so... Uh, you know, if you if you you know can't get into smoke and jumper school, you might be able to get into medical school as a, a second option. Work, you know, it's worked out for me. I still kind of wish you know that I had gotten into smoke jumper school, honestly. But um, sometimes if you fail, it works out okay. But you know what I would say to um, the field going personnel and young firefighters. I mean, there, I can I never knew what NWCG was. I didn't know. You know, I. It's a little emblem on the, the right. red book I had. And now I work at the place that where the emblem comes from sometimes. <laughs> I'm like, well, that's pretty interesting. Um, and I, I think, you know, your day-to-day job, you've got your your supervisor or your engine captain or, you know, whoever. And um, 
you, you don't really have this perspective of, of all these other people working behind the scenes for you. And it can seem like that there's no, like no one else is really out there, but I, I want to assure him, I've been super impressed uh, with my time here at the BLM with just how engaged the, the senior leadership of the BLM is. And, you know, we have a sign in our office that says, what did you do for the field today? I mean, that's the bottom line. And more so than any private industry, any hospital system I've ever seen, and I've been part of good ones, it's really impressive. The, the heart and soul of the leadership here is how do we make life better for the field? And this is part of it. I mean, the OMSP is part of it, but there's many other programs like that. And I just, I want them to know, this is an outside perspective, right? I'm not getting paid to say this. <laughs> Someone else pays me, I think. But it's really impressive. And that's the day-to-day discussions. And so even if you don't know what a FMO is or who the FMO is, they know who you are and are trying to do things for you. And we're going to continue to do that at the national office and through the OMSP. Yeah. And one of the big things too, I think Karen and I have, you know, passion for the field is like you have a voice and we're here to listen. And so definitely don't be afraid to voice that opinion or thoughts or suggestions or anything. Cause that's, that's how these pro, like you said, that's how these programs get started. Yeah. You never from the know. Field. Yeah. I was sitting up on uh Yarnell Hill um, or the Yarnell area with the the fog this year, got to go on a staff ride, which I'd never been on. Fire operation. Fire operation. Sorry. It's like the fog coming in. (laughs) It took me a long time to even be able to say all these acronyms, and I still learn a new one every week, and now I'm using them. I'm going to stop. See, now you're part of us. Right. So. (laughs) changed. Yeah. Like, who knows what the fog is, right? And so, um, but the fog, we were there, and they were sitting. Fire operation group. They were sitting there with a bunch of the, um, interagency hotshot, you know, IHC group or the interagency hotshot crew members. And, um, you know, Steve was Shaw, who's, who was leading the fog that day was saying, you know, this is a really interesting, um, slice in time because we were here you know, years ago talking about tragedy that we needed to have a, you know, OMSP type of program. And it came from like meetings like this with ground folks like you and now we're sitting on this mountainside. We've got a medical director, an ER doctor here with us, and we're talking about these sort of things. And we have a whole program that started. And he's like, so what you say here really does matter and can have impact for the future. And I think that's hard to see as a younger firefighter. I mean, you're just told, you know, asses and elbows dig, you know, sharpen the tool, like where's the, get the chainsaw. Like we're very focused and, um, that's 98% of the, you know, your, your life and your job. Right. But there is that 2% where things are moving forward and it takes a long time to see that. I think, you know, you guys were both in fire. You're both have, I mean, you probably didn't think you'd be doing I, podcasts one day, right? No, no not at yeah. all. <laughs> <laughs> you wanted to go hang out outside and camp and fight fire. Right. And then, yeah. uh, but you've had that ability to adapt and like, you're still within the BLM and you're doing something like, you know, like me, I never thought I'd be sitting in a room doing a podcast, wearing a, <laughs> A Coast Guard uniform. uniform. So um, <laughs> things things happen, and it does take time. And um, if you talk to, I think, most of the folks that have been around in the agency for a while, um, that that's the positive. Uh, most people in the BLM have been there for a while, and so they have that opportunity. And the good news about that is, like, in your positions, you know, you still know what the field does. I mean, maybe not every day you're not, you know, slugging up a pack up a hill, but you've done it, and you when you're making decisions you have that perspective which is which is unique in a lot of businesses 
And I think that's cool from my perspective that our senior leadership at NIFC um, is very visible. They're out in the field. They go to preparedness reviews. They go visit districts. Uh, they interact very well. And I think that's one of the cool things for BLM is that our senior leadership, even the state office, they're out and about in the field. And they know they, they'll go to t- firefighters and say, hey, Drew, how's it going today? How, how was your weekend or something? So that's that's one cool thing I, I will say for BLM is that our, our leadership is visible and connected. Yeah, and they, they make a point of that. I mean, Megan, she's like, you know, I said, I want to. I want to go out on fire. I may have a red card. I want to go out. And she's like, yeah, I want you to go out with the initial attack crews. I don't, you know, you can go to the larger fires and see the fire camp. She's like, but I really, when you're going out, we want you to get in with the initial attack crews because that's, that's who we are. That's who our program's designed for, which was like the best thing in the world for me, you know. I was like, let's, uh, I don't want to sit in camp. I want to get out and hike yeah. and walk with these folks. And, and really it's, you know, a little metaphorical, but walking in someone's shoes, you know, I mean, I'm not, going to be out there able to dig line for 20 hours with the with the young guns but I do go out and get to see what they do and I have those conversations in the field with them and that's one of the goals is to do that more and more so um, if you see me out there you know please talk to me <laughs> so, everyone's always afraid like like who's this old guy hanging out with us like does he have to come out like you know but I, I'll, I'll, I'll I'll go out with you so. in this navy uniform yeah I won't do wear you have that. it in Nomex no there's no Nomex <laughs> I They'll be like, do we need a medical advisor? Oh, for this I know. Guy? But <laughs> no, he's Tyler, Tyler was nice enough to give me a really bright yellow shirt, and so <laughs> it's fun. like, yeah, I know that's so not you have cool. to go out and get it dirty. Yeah, I, it's going to take a while. <laughs> sure. <laughs> well, Doctor Drew, we really appreciate you being here today. It was a great conversation and and learning more about the program, the OMSP program. I appreciate you taking the time to share that with us. Thank you. I appreciate the time being here and for the support of the program. Yeah, thank you very much. It's always great and pleasure hearing everyone's story and how they come up in their perspectives. So to learn more about NIFSI, the BLM, the OMSP program, please visit our website at www.nifsi.gov. If you have questions, comments, or topic suggestions for future podcasts, email them by visiting nifsi.gov website and scroll down to the Contact Us. Use the Wildfire Matter podcast in the subject line. And remember to follow us on BLM Fire on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And thank you all for listening. Please join us next time when we spark a conversation with Matt Norton from the BLM Honor Guard. Until, Until then, then, stay, stay safe, safe and be wildfire, wildfire aware. aware.